Our objective at the Association of Sporting Directors is to support, develop and connect our members who are spread out across the globe and all bring unique skills and experiences to the role of Sporting Director. In addition to our in-person events and our online networking sessions, we are really excited to bring you a brand new podcast series covering key topics generated by the membership and central to the future development of the Sporting Director role and is brought to you by Paul Musa, host of the What The Footy podcast series. Some fascinating insights from practitioners working at the heart of the professional game. Looking forward to these. Over to you, Paul. Thank you so much for your time, Scott, and uh, featuring on the ASD podcast. Paul, thank you for the invitation. Uh, I know you've had a long list of illustrious guests before me, so let's see whether together we can keep up the high standard that this podcast uh, has had. No, awesome. Thank you. So our sort of mission at the ASD is to really understand how sporting directors and how our members make effective decisions, reset and set culture and effectively strive to achieve success within football. So the first question I want to know from you, Scott, is what does the word culture mean to you within a football environment? Starting with a tough question. So uh, I took the liberty of looking up what the definition of culture was in the dictionary. So that's a a set of attitudes and behaviours that characterise a group or an organisation. So in other words, who we are and how we behave together. But uh, I have to say your question is really of the moment, given the journey I've undertaken in my present role as a working as a head of football for a multi-club cooperative, let's say. Um, so um, developing or resetting a culture is not a one-size-fits-all exercise in my experience. So there's behaviours and customs and conventions and nuances that are unique and need to be accounted for when you uh, do it. So um, I think high performance is or culture is uh, the behaviours, the actions, the words you use in your organisation that you hold each other accountable for. No, that's that's brilliant, Scott. Thank you. And just sort of opening up this, just sort of talk to me about your, obviously your background is in analysis and in scouting. Just talk to me about how, how that sort of background has helped you and shaped you in your current role now as global head of football at Global Football Holdings and, 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 and the job you recently did at Chelsea. Obviously, we know that different people in the role come from different backgrounds, but just sort of talk yeah. to me about how, how the experiences that you've built in your career have, have, have helped you to date. Well, it's been quite a long journey uh, from 1992 till now. Uh, started as a self-employed coach working in playgrounds with a bag of 10 footballs in the West London area, thanks to Wimbledon Football Club's community scheme. And and as they say, the rest of the journey is down to some degree in the history books or what we supported is in the history books. Um, I did a variety of different roles on that particular journey. Uh, primarily at the start because I was so eager to find a full-time job. And in the late 90s, full-time jobs in football were rather difficult to get. The The amount of support staff around teams was far smaller than it is now. So um, in my degree at university, I'd studied performance analysis. And uh, I was very, very fortunate to be at Wimbledon at the time that Egil Olsen, who was one of the very early pioneers of analysis, joined the club as the head coach. And... 
I uh, stood outside his office door eight weeks in a row and asked him every Monday if he would teach me what he did. And eventually he succumbed to my powers of persuasion and uh, he let me see how he worked. And eventually I worked alongside him uh, to to execute performance analysis in his one season at Wimbledon. And then thereafter, it beca- I became the head of the department and the, the first analyst that Wimbledon had ever had. So... Um, I think my journey has been varied across different aspects of the football side. And I think where that is now applicable in my present role is that I've got a a broad foundation and understanding of the different roles. And when I go into the clubs within our, on our network now, I think it's um, I do my best to lean on that experience to build a rapport and understanding of the challenges that each of the people have in their roles within our clubs. And I think that's where that now stands me in good stead with the people that we meet as we build relationships in our network. You know, that's, that's super useful. And just sort of leaning into one of your prior experiences before going into global football holdings, obviously you were at Chelsea for 11 years and yeah. worked there during a very successful time within the football club and, and definitely a club that people look to in terms of having that tight-knit operation behind the scenes with the likes of people you would have worked with, like Marina, for example. Just, just sort of talk to me about what the vision and the culture of the club was like and how that developed and changed over time as you were there. Yeah, so Chelsea was an unbelievable experience. Uh, I have to say that to be part of the history of that club over those 11 years and, and to support the work and the objectives of the club over that time is, has been a, a highlight of my time, without doubt. Uh, the culture was had already been somewhat developed prior to that because I joined maybe seven or eight years already into the Abramovich era. So there were some firm... Uh, guidelines and behavioural standards that were already ready in, in place, but the, the organisation expected to be the best and win because it had the best people in all the different areas of the club and they were very, very well resourced. So uh, the organisation and the behaviours was a perpetual search for edge in every domain within the club, uh, a competitive culture across all the departments within the club and to outside the club to be the best. So uh, it was a really enriching experience to work with so many people who were leaders in their field, whatever that may be, you know, Neil Bath, uh, supported by Jim, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And all of the coaches I had the great pleasure of working with and supporting at the time. And as you said, rightly so, uh, Marina, who was the top of the house when it came to uh, the football side of the business. So it was a, it was a demanding um, culture that required us to be the best in every single domain every single season and anything less than being the best was quickly reflected on and appropriate changes made to then be competitive again in the pre- in the next season or whatever in, in, in across every single team and every single department so it was um, a very enriching experience to work in such a competitive uh, and demanding uh, culture. Now that's, that's super useful, Scott, because I think this building on that, then taking that experience from Chelsea and then working within this multi-club ownership model with different clubs in different regions, how do you then sort of 
translate those experiences into those clubs because something I hear a lot of people s- s- sort of say in football when they move from one role to another role in a different club to a different club is that not every club is the same. So what worked at one club may not work at another. You have to really understand the intricacies and the uniquenesses of different clubs. Now working within that multi-club model, how do you really try and almost bring over those those wins, those learnings from Chelsea, but also refreshing, bringing new ideas, understanding what makes real Salt Lake different to Crystal Palace and makes it different to Augsburg, for example? Great question. So the first thing I've learned on this journey is um, that it takes a great deal of your time and investment of your time to, to start to develop a culture across seven different clubs. Uh, it requires you to be comfortable being the person with the least knowledge in the organization. Something uh, people tell me I'm quite good at being that, the one with the least knowledge. It requires you to certainly be a proficient listener armed with a curious mindset if you're to investigate, first and foremost, the present culture. And then evolving that culture over time, I believe, requires a balance of storytelling supported by action. People don't want to just hear what you plan to do or what the culture should be. They also need to see you live that particular culture or change if they're to invest in it and join you on the journey. Um, in reality, I've done that several different ways uh, across the last four clubs I've worked at. Um, I feel there's some cornerstones uh, of, of developing a culture in that way. I think the first and critical one, you need a clarity of purpose. You need to understand a why. So a clear vision of the desired outcome. And that in our in our network is unique for each club. Okay, um, we don't have the it might not be possible given the context of the league and the competition each club's in for them all to be super successful. So knowing what the measure of success is is critically important. So that's what the desired outcome is. Then you need a shared mental model uh, of how it's going to look to get there. So in my experience, that might be let's say Fulham, pioneering the integration of data into scouting methods at Fulham to develop a hybrid of traditional and data-based scouting to inform player acquisitions. Or at Chelsea, that might have been embarking on this journey for us to professionalise scouting uh, and to lead a change within that sector of the business and to be an industry exemplar, just to give two examples of clarity. I also believe you need to co-create the culture it can't be handed down from me or from the ownership as the leaders working collaboratively to map the journey identify the resources required measure the competencies you presently have um, will help you develop those over time you need to leverage the knowledge that's already in the team we know in any business changing people to effect change can be quite difficult. And I think there's evidence that keeping people and retaining people from a cultural perspective is a really strong indicator of success. So I've particularly found confidence uh, and comfort in empowering any of the teams I've worked with because it's impossible to have all the answers as a single person. So I think it's great to lean on the people around you and trust their instincts and their knowledge. Um, And together you shape the working rules of your tribe, the expectations of each other, the roles each will have and how we wish to interact with each other. Um, 
I think building a culture is a participation event. It's not a spectator event. Then um, just a couple more things I'm thinking of is behavioral standards. So how we do things, processes, structures, we need feedback on how we do those so people understand them. Uh, these need to be, I, I think, hardwired and they're the we standards, they're how we do things. And then uh, attention to detail is important. Um, I think some of the people I work with at Chelsea would understand that ATD, attention to detail, was one of my favourite words. I grew a bit of a reputation for sending work back if players' names weren't spelt right or clubs' names were misspelt. And, and that's because our work was showcased to stakeholders and even that detail is representing the culture and the behavioural standard of your team. So I found it was critical. We even spelt names right and gave full club names on some of our documents. And the last one that I'm working out really hard personally to be better at, if I'm honest with you, uh, it's still a journey for me, is your social intelligence, Paul. Understanding your role within the group, giving consistent behaviours and appreciating your emotional style. Um, the mood in any organisation cascades from the leader all the way down to the furthest employee away from the, the actual hub of the business. And you need to be very careful that you're cognizant of that and very consistent with it. Um, research has even indicated recently that teams can actually share mood within just spending two hours with each other. So if you think how many hours players and staff spend in a football environment, it's important that leaders are very aware of how they control their emotional state and their mood. Yeah, and, and even just broader on that, Scott, do you, do you almost feel as though your background in analysis and scouting where you're constantly working closely with people on a daily, hourly basis in terms of making decisions together has kind of made you cognizant and aware of these, some of the sort of the things that you've described there now that you're in this position? Yeah, I think my time supporting the coaches and the managers and the players and the unit coaches over time um, has taught me to appreciate the, the pressures and the different viewpoints of people. Now I'm doing that in a multinational, multilingual setting. I think it has certainly given me some understanding of people's different views. We have a phrase in our group that you've got to, you've got to see the pup from the other side of the green. So it's very easy, given the urgency of this business, to go in and offer what you believe is the right solution really quickly to how people should behave or a strategic objective. But I think, I think I've learned over time to, to, to ask better questions and listen before you offer any uh, remedial action or intervention that you think will improve uh, the behavior. I think you need to ask for the the context of the people and the characters in that particular case to start with before you then present anything else and uh, understanding cultures uh, and, and different levels uh, within the organisation, uh, I think, has been a positive aspect for me in this role. Yeah, and then even just linking on to culture, how does the culture determine who you hire and recruit from a playing perspective and a non-playing staff perspective? I remember... Um, when we had the ASD meetup at Fulham in your in your little one-to-one -one session, you you mentioned this whole idea of player due diligence and how, for example, we can know the ex-player how good they are because we can look at the data, we can go and watch them play live. But that extra layer in terms of 
of that personality and that that almost cultural fit in terms of really trying to understand that. But what what are the ways in which you've seen that change over time, and how how do those things really affect the culture and who who you really bring in? That's a really good question, Paul, because I think in my time as an analyst and then and then evolving into the scouting domain, I think um, a lot of the other areas have lost their edge, if I'm quite honest with you. So I remember back in the day having a DVD or even showing my age a VHS cassette of a player or of a game was a real edge back in the day. Now with uh, all of the digital products that are available, Anybody can watch a game within a couple of hours notice from anywhere in the world. So having access to a player and that player's performances is no longer an edge. And then if you add on the evolution of the scouting and the diligence in the scouting and the, and the observation skill that scouts now have because it's been professionalized, then I would say the top 20 or 30 clubs in the world are all probably broadly in the same area as far as proficiency in that aspect is concerned. But I firmly believe where the real cutting edge work is, is how a player fits into your organisation. So we know the player is good enough for the level of competition. We know the player is good enough for the position we're requiring to play. But the real piece that would dictate success on either side of the relationship will be his fit culturally to your organisation. So fit with the manager's communication style, fit with his emotional uh, landscape fit with teammates fit with partners on the pitch fit with medical people etc etc and that's certainly an area that I'm I think is interesting and I'm very interested in continuing to learn and educate how we can make that make that even better because we have to be very cognizant that the human being it can be notably different from the player you see on the grass um, I think there's a some aspect of acting or being in character on the grass but i think to build a long lasting deep rapport we need to understand what the what the player is as a human being when he comes off of the pitch yeah and and, and even on that how how do you really thoroughly assess it because it almost seems now that a lot of that is done via obviously asking maybe coaches within the setup who've maybe coached him for, for the national team or previous clubs or asking players who've played with that player or play with them at a national level but we've not really seen from a tech perspective or technology perspective the same way that we've seen in other aspects of, of, of the football operations side but how's the really the best way to assess that and really get that get that right? I think it, it does certainly involve a lot of the aspects you mentioned there yeah. although we know that uh, let's say anecdotal testimony from teammates and ex-coaches etc uh, does have a certain level of, of bias in that. I'm also cautious of the efficacy of psychological testing. I don't think we have a test that really, really is suitable for, for football. But what we do know is that humans over a period of time have habits that show over time and are consistent. So um, there is ways of checking people's uh, off-field behaviour, uh, social media activity, etc., that's become a little bit more prevalent recently as a way of finding out what the real person is behind the uh, behind the the player aspect of that that personality. But I also think um, 
spending time with that particular person and being very targeted, strategic and scripted where you're questioning can often elicit the answers that you require to some of your questions in this uh, aspect of a player and recruitment. No, that's that's super useful, Scott. And, and just sort of circling back to multi-club ownership, just sort of talk to me about the real practicalities of working within it. We, we hear a lot about the synergies, the economies, the scales, the data sharing, the benefits, they're all, all, all linked here. But just talk to me about the real the real practicalities for you from a management time perspective, from a time zone perspective, from a people management perspective. Okay. So, you know, it's a really, really interesting dynamic in the football industry presently. And I know there are uh, a great many of these multi-club ownerships we don't, we don't consider ourselves a multi-club ownership. We consider ourselves a multi-club cooperative uh, because it's a, a group of clubs with uh, sharing information and sharing best practice with the aim of bringing each club's individual performance up. As you can imagine, it is, as you alluded to, seriously time-consuming. Um, I found it terribly interesting to, to link to my point earlier about investigating what is the the past and present culture of the club and what is the core cultural identity and values that that club particularly holds is really, really critical. So um, if we take our latest club, Bromby, for instance, we are um, privileged to be the custodian of this club that has a rich cultural identity for many reasons in Danish football. If I give you a case study, it's the country's first fully professional club, first to be listed on the stock exchange and the only Danish club to, to have played in the European semi-final. But those aspects are wrapped around a wonderful, uh, tightly knit community and fanzine and the club. So there's this three fans, community and club is this three uh, points of the triangle, which is seen as being really, really critical. So firstly, it was really important. We understood the historical perspective of that and what are the core values that the fans and the community demand of the club that represents them? And there's a really strong connection between the two. Um, and for them to share the standards that, that they wish the custodians of the club, i.e. us, to uphold. So it was really, really interesting because um, we had to work in direct partnership with the fans over several months in deep discussion to be educated in the club's values and identity and the practices they wished for us to continue and uphold. So areas such as talent identification, player development, transfer loans, how we communicate externally, what kind of sponsorships we have and many other areas were discussed. Um, and this led to the drafting and ultimately the signing of what I think is one of the few, if not the first, legally binding culture and heritage agreement between fans and ownership of a football club. Uh, and that was a really interesting experience to, to understand how the two sides need to work collaboratively for the, for the, the future of a club and to continue the story of that club long into the future for future generations was a really interesting experience for us over in Denmark. No, and, and even just leading on that as well, uh, we sort of alluded to it a bit earlier, but what does success look like for you and for, for David and for everybody involved in Global Football Holdings in relation to the different clubs and, and the overall organisation? So 
for the organisation, it's making sure that every club maximises their potential. We realise that every club has a unique challenge in the league and the competition in which it competes. So we wish to bring up the level for each and every club by better resourcing, uh, perhaps some better budget, etc. but generally working smarter uh, to improve the performance of each and every single team. Each club has a unique individual uh, performance goal that they're required to achieve, and that can also change season on season, depending on who comes in and out of the group. Um, so, yeah, we're very, very cognizant that each club considers themselves unique from the others in that respect. We don't have a common game model. We have a common style, but we don't have a, a common game model. Um, so we wish each of our clubs to retain the culture and the identity and not homogenize these clubs into one group because uh, each club's had 50, 60, 70 or more years journey before we arrived. So we, we really take seriously our job as a, as a custodian and a steward of each of these clubs for the period we have them and to work collaboratively with the stakeholders and the fans, et cetera, to, to make each club improve over time. But it, it, it's, uh, it's also really, really important that we do that in a sustainable way, given the pressures and the vagaries of the of football finance presently, that that's done in a financially sustainable way as well. So that the club stays long into the future. No, it's, it's quite interesting because with these the sort of different models that are out there to take, for example, obviously the Red Bull model, obviously we've seen obviously recently with Dominic's uh, sober sly who's just gone to Liverpool, obviously yeah. almost developing through the different Red Bull Red Bull clubs, starting off at Levering and going to Salzburg and then going to Leipzig and then obviously now making his way to Liverpool. Is that what you guys envisage happening as well or having a similar player trading model? Is it just the case, as you mentioned there, of just purely just using all your knowledge and sh knowledge sharing effectively to, to improve each club separately? Yeah, it's the latter presently. Yeah. Um, but underpinning that will be the level of continuity in care, putting the athlete first, putting the player first at the centre of our, of our focus uh, and making sure that we offer the, the best care and support systems from the multidisciplinary team that we can have in each and every one of our clubs. Yes, there is the aspect that players can move within our network if necessary, but um, it's important to consider that that's not the only way for our players to develop. It's a consideration and we work with great transparency to make sure the stakeholders in each of our clubs understand why player X might have transferred to, to club A within our network and to make sure that that decision is made with detailed evidence-based uh, information in the round of why we've made that decision because one of our key things is our is our diligence in, in communicating to our supporters and our fans of each of these clubs why players won't move from club to club. No, that's brilliant, Scott. And and from your perspective, what's next on the horizon for global football holdings? Are you going to see, I know you haven't got an EFL club there yet, are you looking to maybe add some new new sort of clubs to the roster as well? Or At the moment, I think it's, for, for from my perspective, in my role for the organisation, it's a matter of, consolidating what we have, digging deeper into the processes and structures uh, that we have uh, and building greater rapport with these people to raise the performance level. Um, I think 
it's really critical that we start to standardize some of our behavioral models uh, around all of the organization and see if we can really, really supercharge the, the knowledge share. There's a great deal of experience across the clubs. We have some wonderful people that have worked for a long time in each of these places and have deep, deep knowledge of each of the, the clubs and the leagues we're in uh, that, can, that can share and bring that to bear across the rest of the network. I'm a firm believer that I think if we set the right culture, we can actually grow our own people. Um, I think that's really, really critical that not only do we offer a platform for players to develop within the network, I think it's also important that people see that there's a career pathway for those roles that are off the field, be that scouts, medical people, etc., that might want to grow to be, by chance, sports directors. Yeah, and it's quite interesting that you mentioned that because quite, quite a lot of people who who are in, in sort of position like yourself now will sort of seem to have came out of that era like yourself of working at Southampton and working at Fulham. And would you, would you sort of say that that culture was sort of fostered for you when you were at those football clubs and you want to kind of do the same thing now as well? Yeah, I think I've been very, very fortunate that a lot of the clubs I've worked at uh, was, were clubs that cared deeply for the people, their people and encourage them to challenge themselves and, and to continue their education. Um, Fulham, when I had the great, uh, great Roy and Ray and Barry Simmons and some other wonderful people that we worked with there, Alistair and Darren, uh, education was a big part of Fulham's identity. They had a very, very strong internal employee education program, as did Chelsea, very, very strong uh, and broad education program for their employees in there across all sectors of the club. And, and working at Southampton, I had the great pleasure of spending some time working for, for Sir Clive Woodward when I was there. And he, he was very, very fervent oh. in his belief that continuing to educate yourself and challenge your level of knowledge was a really big part of being a successful practitioner in this business. So I have been very lucky obviously right at the start to have the tutelage and the care of Egil to teach me performance analysis. Um, I've been very privileged to work with some wonderful people who've um, nurtured that need to grow and continue to push yourself uh, to find new ways of working. Last question. What one word would you use to sum up global football holdings in the culture? That's a really tough one. I've got so many words on my mind. Just, just throw them all out, throw them all out, Scott. Why not? Oh, innovative, uh, focused. And tell you what we are. Most of all, we are, we are player and human focused. Okay? You've got to really dig deep into your people, understand your people, their desires, their competencies, their ambitions, um, their foibles. You have to understand, really deeply understand your people if you're going to build a culture. That's my starting point. Uh, I'm still on that journey 10 months into this role, and it's a really exciting journey. But I think uh, understanding our people is what we're really, really focused on. And, and then to support them to be the best they possibly can be would be my ambition for this organisation. No, Scott, that's brilliant. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your invaluable insights into, into your world. Appreciate it. Paul, thanks ever so much for your time as well. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Cheers.
it's Andy from Zone 7. In the time it takes to read out this ad, our proprietary AI could have analyzed your training and game data, informed you which of your players were at increased risk of injury, and suggested how your staff could reduce that risk by simulating optimal workload strategies for the week ahead. If you want to find out more about how it does this, visit zone7.ai and click request a demo to start up a conversation. Now, back to the episode. 